introducing the Brain Can Do Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Brain Can Do Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Stevenson. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at authenticity and what does that mean and why is it so important for success. Now, it is often said that authentic communication is a critical component of meaningful interactions in multiple contexts. That might explain why the start of this podcast, I've had to record it four, five, six times now. Uh, It's definitely the most re-recordings that I've done because my interview today is with Ed Dennis, an ex-head teacher, now professional wrestler. And in this extended interview, there is so much good stuff here that Ed talks about. I really struggled to communicate an introduction that I think did justice to all of the great things that he talked about. And then while I was thinking about what sort of to, to call this episode or how could I encapsulate everything that Ed stands for, I came across some research from the California State University in 2017 where they found that authentic teachers have a significantly better engagement rate with their students. They found that students do pay attention to the message we send about ourselves, as well as the actual context of what we're teaching. And as you listen to my discussions with Ed, that comes through a lot and explains why he is so successful. Really enjoyed talking to Ed. I think you'll all enjoy listening to this interview as well. And here's what Ed had to say when I caught up with him the other week. Ed, welcome. How are you doing today? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Ben. Nice to be on. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, no, thank you again for joining us. So, Ed, you're here because I'm, to be honest, fascinated with with your career. Maths teacher, head of house, head of a junior school, and then professional wrestler nowadays. You've had a sort of a very unique career and journey. Uh, Could you just tell our audience a bit about your sort of teaching background and career? Yeah, so it starts before being, I always think that like, my journey in education probably starts significantly before being um, a mathematics teacher because really like going through childhood child care of some kind was always my, my my job so I never had like I never worked in a bar or I never worked in um, a, a shop or did a paper round or anything when I was 15 I got a job working in a play scheme helping look after kids that turned into when I was 16 during the holidays I'd work in their holiday club which that company was affiliated to Um, and then when I finished school I worked as a teaching assistant in a primary school for a little while and then I went to university and when I finished my degree I ended up managing the play scheme that I used to um, that I used to work at Uh, And then I did a PGC, not really because I wanted to be a teacher, but just because I knew I didn't want to go into a graduate job because a graduate job from mathematics would have been working in some kind of office capacity in accounting or something of that nature. I knew that I never wasn't ready for that. Um, And then uh, so so I did a PGC just because I had so much experience of working with children. I knew I could do that sort of thing. and then the whole wrestling thing started and then I found myself um, working as a school teacher but even when I got my job working in a private school as a mathematics teacher I really just did it because it was a boarding school so it was a way to save money to try and run off and chase my dream of being a pro wrestler like I don't really have any career aspirations but um, it's it's funny how I guess time changes and when you're young and enthusiastic it only takes a couple of years of being a classroom teacher and and all of a sudden middle middle management positions seem more alluring just because it's like 
an extra challenge and nobody wants to be well some people I guess I, I don't maybe it's negative to use the term stagnant but I would have felt if I'd have done like a third year as a just a classroom teacher I would have felt a bit stagnant I would have felt like I was just recycling content so I took up uh, a head of year position um, and then transitioned from the head of year position into a head of house position just because the particular school that we were working at um, head of year was academic and head of house was pastoral and I always saw myself as more of an affinity towards the pastoral side of education and then um, it was a through school so it started at four and went all the way up to 18. I had obviously worked in the senior school side the entire time. Um, the current junior school head was leaving. I didn't even know at the time that the school sort of were interested in the idea of restructuring management so that there would be an overarching principle of both sites and almost a deputy head like position in the in the primary school um I just applied for it because I thought it would be good experience and would have shown willing and um would have made me a more viable candidate for a head of a boarding house or a deputy head pastoral or you know a different role within the senior school and lo and behold the the school which I worked at were willing to take a bit of a risk I didn't have any formal uh training in primary I did have a lot of experience in primary because obviously that play scheme which I spoke about which I'd have been working at sort of a decade earlier um was always primary school children and I was as I mentioned at the beginning a learning support assistant in a primary school for a little while between um between secondary education and university um so they they sort of took a bit of a gamble on me and kind of worked out um I think I, I did everything that that I was designed to do in the primary school which was like shake it up a little bit and bring a little bit of young enthusiasm and bring a little bit of a senior school mm, perception to the role and then move on and the only thing that's real strange is moving on into pro wrestling but that was kind of always the plan I guess it just took 10 years and a role in senior management for me to realize that I needed to do it. (laughs) So yeah, I say a fascinating journey that you've gone on, um, and I think a lot of our, our listeners will want to sort of uh, follow your path. Perhaps not all the way to pro wrestling. Um, <laughs> I know that would be my, my dream in the future. But I think for a lot of young teachers, sort of listening, you've touched upon there. You said enthusiasm was key to make you stand out. Was there anything else you thought that you had done in your early years of teaching that made yourself ready to take such a, a senior role on? Um, I think that when when i was younger i probably put a lot of things down to uh, i'm gonna say that again because my phone went funny um when i was younger i put a lot of things down to being a natural or being comfortable with children uh and, and things like that and probably didn't give myself enough credit for working hard <laughs> Um, and now I can look back on things retrospectively and be like, oh, I actually had a really good work ethic. Like, and I never gave myself credit for having a good work ethic because I equated work ethic to doing things which I wasn't particularly good at doing. So I never saw myself as having a good work ethic because I wasn't very good at writing lesson plans. I wasn't very good at doing really thorough marking. Um, I, I wasn't, but. The, even when I was a classroom teacher, there is no way I would have missed a house event because 
I cared about the children that I was the tutor for. And if those kids were taking part in a house event, I would be there. And and there's just there's there's no way I would have missed I would have missed a house event. So it blew my mind when I got to a head of house position and there were heads of houses that would miss house events. Because I was just like, well, as a newly qualified teacher, I just wouldn't miss one. Do you know what I mean? And and I would never try and sort of like um, shuffle my paperwork around so that I could like duck away early from a parent's evening. Like if there was a parent that could only come and see me at 8.30 at night and my last appointment was at six o'clock, I wouldn't grumble about the fact that I had to wait until 8.30 because I thought that it was really important. Do you know what I mean? That I got to interact with that parent now i never classed that stuff as work ethic but now looking back on it a little bit older i realize that someone in their mid-20s who has that mindset because i've seen enough people in their mid-20s who don't have that mindset that that is actually work ethic and i i I just never really i just never really called it work ethic does that make sense definitely i think as you're talking i was really thinking about sort of the phrase buy-in and for you you really bought into the the ethos of the school that you were working at and with that that then brought buy-in from the parents other staff students because as you say my memories of of working with you was always that if there was something going on and we needed volunteers that ed dennis would be one of the first people to put his name down if there was a talent show and they needed staff to make a fool of themselves your name would be down there if there was a duty that needed covered and you could do it you were like of course i would and i think what you really highlight is that the teaching is not just what you do in the classroom but it's the whole wider context that's so important yeah 100 percent. and i think that like obviously because we work together that you can you can draw on those things and and realize those things and and again i think sometimes people mistake that for like oh he does that because he's a bit of a uh he's a bit of a show-off he's a bit of a like he wants to be the center of attention so that gives him an opportunity to be at the center of attention and there has to be an element of truth to that do you know what i mean that there, there, there has to be an element of truth to that but but it's, that's not the main reason the main reason is because i fully believed like from from working in a play scheme when i was 15 years old to working in a holiday club when i was 16 and 17 managing a holiday club in my early 20s to be in a classroom teacher to be in a head of school i firmly believe that if you wanted children to be enthusiastic about something you had to have genuine enthusiasm for it yourself and like i think about professional wrestling and i was in a tag team um and people used to ask oh why was everyone so invested in you guys we used to come out to a song called party hard band wk and everyone would go crazy when it happened why are people so invested when you and mark come out to that song and what i'd always say was i I genuinely think that everyone can see through legitimacy and illegitimacy everyone can see when people go out there and fake it and obviously there's aspects of what we do in professional wrestling which you know might be um uh showmanship but like for the two or three minutes when that song's playing and me and mark are coming to the ring and partying that's genuinely us 
you know, we are actually best friends. And if that song did come on in a nightclub, that's the way we would act. And I think that kids are the same, man. Like kids can tell whether you are just going through the motions at this house event or whether you, you know, you really are into it and, you know, you, you really do buy into this ethos. And it's funny for me to to consider myself as buying into the ethos of a prime of um, a, a very middle to upper class boarding private school because I'd consider myself like working class left wing almost socialist you know what I mean but when I got into that kind of education I realized so many pros of the boarding specifically boarding do you know what I mean that communal aspect and the the pastoral care that you get in that kind of environment um and yeah you use the term buy-in and I couldn't I can't think I can't think of a better term do you know what I mean I just I just fully bought into that bought into that mindset and I loved having that relationship with the children in the school um and the children can see that it's genuine and I think that staff can see that it's genuine as well and it's one of those things where when you're doing it if it's genuine you don't realize that staff are noticing it but senior management are noticing it do you know what I mean maybe senior management you maybe all you think senior management notice is that your books had like a bad review when they got in and you got 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 read over because they weren't very well marked or like you know you you went out on the weekend and you made a fool of yourself and someone reported it like you think that those things are really are, are what senior management see and obviously they do see those things but you don't realize that they also see this genuine enthusiasm and you know what I mean the, the the things that the kids care about I knew that those were the things that the kids care about I didn't really realize maybe that senior management was smarter than they let on and uh, and that they probably realize that that stuff's important too no definitely and I think again you get making me think of so many things just as you're talking about flashbacks to working with you and what comes across and picking up on you saying about being a bit of a, a show off I don't think it's necessarily a show off. You say it's being genuine, it's being enthusiastic about what you do, and then it becomes welcoming. I think about when I used to do lesson walks and walk around the school and see other teachers. You were someone from day one, being a newly qualified teacher. If someone walked past your classroom, you would happily have them in. Oh, Steve, come have a look, come look at what I'm doing. Look at this is what they're doing today and talking to me. And you could have a conversation. You weren't put off by other people coming into your classroom because you created that welcoming environment and i think that is really yeah yeah absolutely and i think that that is something which i would always be um amazed at how stressed teachers would get at the thought of being inspected or how stressed teachers would get at the thought of being observed um and i i just I never really grasped that because I was just like, but, you know, this is our job. Like we're, we're qualified to, to, to teach. So surely if someone comes in and watches you, like they're going to watch you do the thing that you're, that you're trained to do. That should be, that should be great. And even if the less, like nobody in education, nobody observes people to fire people. Nobody observes people to, you know, as an excuse to get rid of someone, a good observation um, system should be in play there to improve people's, you know, teaching and learning. So the worst that can happen 
really if someone comes and watches you teach is it goes really well that's the worst that can happen because you don't get any you don't get any useful feedback from it right the best thing that can happen is something goes horribly wrong and you fumble to try and fix it and then you don't fix it and it's terrible and then you get a feedback session with that person that person's like oh my god that happened to me once when I was a newly qualified teacher, here's a really good tip to get around that problem. That's the best thing that can happen because you've just been made better because of the, you know, because of the feedback loop. And I think that every school should should fight to have a strong feedback loop within the school and just normalize the process of observing colleagues because um, it happens in. I think it probably happens in every other profession, right? You observe people who are better at what you're doing than, you know, and and, and it does exist in education. I just think that people shy away from it or people don't want to be, people don't want to be told that they're not doing a good job. And I understand that. But if we just embrace that process a little bit more and, you know, we constantly tell the children about not having a fear of failure, you know what I mean? And constantly try and sell the children on the ideology that the best thing you can do is get something wrong because I'm going to help explain to you why it's wrong and you're actually going to learn from that process. Whereas if you just get something right, it doesn't really accomplish anything. You know what I mean? Definitely. I couldn't couldn't agree more there. As you say, this feedback loop is so important and probably the mindset of both parties going into it. If you've got an open, honest discussion and people feel comfortable, then they're going to take your sort of approach and welcome people into the classroom and say, come and look at what I'm doing. Be really proud of it. But as you say, I, I love that idea of when things go wrong. That's when you really you want someone else watching so that they can share those examples with you. And I think you've I say someone who sort of went through the ranks quickly have seen that on both sides and so from your view sort of of being a, a school leader did you have a moment where you were like wow this is it I am the head teacher was there like a defining moment for you that you were sort of it hit you um it's hard to identify it really I think in the first year I was just there's a I really like the phrase of trying to keep your head above the waves. And I think that that's, I was head above water the whole time in the first year, just trying to stay afloat. Do you know what I mean? Um, And I was coming into a primary school as a very young man with no experience in primary education, with a staff full of people who are much more seasoned than me, not just in primary education. I mean, it stands to reason that they would be more experienced in primary education but actually just more experienced in life do you know what i mean there's countless uh, these teachers who have children and families and have been teaching for 20 years you know and i've maybe been teaching for six or seven at that time um so i i remember in that first year of spending so much of the time i suppose trying to prove myself to those members of staff as much as anything else you know just to work my tail off I knew what I wanted my leadership style to be I I knew I wanted to be someone who sort of led from the front I knew I wanted to be someone who was a very very visible presence around the school Um, so I just worked extremely hard to do that but 
never really took into account, I think, the amount of um, uh, the amount of other roles that's required as uh, a senior leader. And as a result, I, my first year definitely burnt the candle at both ends because I, I was determined to spend so much of the day interacting with the children and interacting with the teaching staff to embrace the primary education ethos and feel and become, you know, uh, experience within it um, that I would end up doing that for most of the working day. And then I'd have to do all of the roles, which a lot of heads spend the majority of their day in the office doing from four o'clock onwards. So I wasn't getting home till nine, ten o'clock at night, you know, because I was spending all this time in the office and I've never taken work home with me. My whole career, I've never taken work home with me. I've always had a work. The, the My way of managing a work-life balance is I do not leave work until I've done the amount of work that needs to be done for that evening. I will never take a lesson plan or a report or a book home with me. It'll never happen. I'll stay in the office until 11 o'clock at night if I need to so that I can get home and, and actually switch off. Um, and, and that's what I was doing a lot of the time. In the second year, I felt like more of a head teacher because in the second year, I actually admitted defeat <laughs> on the lev on the level of uh, visibility that I could provide um, and understood that if I wanted to have any semblance of work life balance, I did need to just admit defeat that that this is not a in front of the kids 80% of the time role. This is a in front of the kids 30% of the time role and sat behind a desk or in a meeting or with a member of staff or with a parent the other 70% of the time. It is probably closer to 80-20, do you know what I mean? That's just that's just the way it is. And and I think that once I discovered that I um I felt like a head teacher. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I realized what it was to be a head teacher, and I, I started to get my head around um, how to be as effective as possible in that twenty percent. You know what I mean? So if I'm going to go around and interact with the children, I'm going to be, I'm going to try and be as effective as I possibly can in that time, because I know that it is a small amount of time, so I've got to make the most of it. Yeah. So it's it's acknowledging that transition in the role and perhaps not go, OK, this is what I've done in the past. So I'm going to keep doing all of this and then add everything on top because that's not sustainable. It's about sort of adjusting those routines. Um, and I really like that in terms of, you say, when you are doing the, the things that make you making it most effective of that time, it's going to be really important. Yeah, I think so. And I think that in reality, you you know, I should have probably done that more incrementally. So I should have probably done it a little bit when I was ahead of year, a little bit more when I was ahead of house, and then a little bit more when I was a when I was a um ahead of school, but I didn't. I, I kind of just I kept that like uh, spend most of my time with the kids mentality through my middle management roles. So it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks when I hit that senior management, just because there's just there's just a lot of meetings when you work in senior management, you know what I mean? There's a lot of committees, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of governors, there's a lot of 
budgeting there's a lot of staff there's a lot of departments every department needs a meeting every year group needs a meeting every parent rep needs a meeting you know every governor needs a meeting and then you've got your meetings with the senior school staff for transitional purposes and you know if you're working in a primary school and you're a and you're a senior leader then chances are you've got some kind of child protection role as well so there's those meetings and you know you've got your meetings with just yeah when, when and 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 you need and and you can't avoid the factor that a school is a fluid environment and as much as you strive to be proactive ultimately you will spend at least a portion of your time being reactive because children misbehave <laughs> and when children misbehave you have to react to that misbehavior so a lot of times you can have this whole day sort of like laid out in front of you of x y and z this is what i'm going to get done and then there'll be a fight in the playground at break time and that's it before you know it you're taking witness statements and calling parents and your days evaporated in front of you and you haven't actually accomplished anything i think about that with with the government you know i think about how i'm sure being a uh being a prime minister is probably a full-time role and then imagine there being a pandemic and you're like, well, what happened to all the other jobs that I have to do every single day? Because now all I have, now I do this every single day. Like, how, what happened to all the other jobs? Yeah. Because um, that's what it felt like in, in education. You know, you had a full time job as a senior leader, but then something would happen which you have to be reactive about. And all of a sudden you managed to get everything that had to be done in 20 minutes done in 20 minutes. <laughs> because because you have to spend the other seven or eight hours dealing with this reactive incident you know definitely it's always my worry when I look at something and go oh it looks like I've got a quiet day today and <laughs> no, that never turns out the way it is there's always something coming around the corner that you're not prepared for so Ed, what's really interesting with you is that is someone who has gone from being a math teacher and you taught all the way up to, to A-level maths going into sort of a junior school and something really interesting is that transition then from students going from year six to seven and I think you're sort of in a perfect position to sort of look at that transition what do you think for sort of parents listening and and teachers what are the biggest challenges for a year seven student starting school yeah I think that uh, um I think that it's more pastorally driven than it is academic because i do think that the the primary education um scheme of work uh just leads you nicely into the the secondary education you know they have like a, a spiral effect where they revisit things on an annual basis and it does lend itself nicely into secondary education and even though there's a lot more cross-curricular stuff in a primary setting just because it's easier to do it because it's the same classroom teacher delivering a lot of the content i still think that primary at least the school which which we worked at primary education was still very much subject driven so it was still the kids were still aware that they were in a maths lesson or still aware that they were in an English lesson or still aware that they were in a humanities lesson or an art lesson or a PE lesson so that transition into individual subject teachers I think is a little bit less daunting than maybe we as members of staff would, would think it would be but I think what we just don't lend enough thought and consideration to is just like the geographical challenge i suppose do you know what i mean like the physical layout of a school um you've just got to be in the mindset of if you start a new job you know 
the job itself often isn't that intimidating because chances are that your previous roles have prepared you for that role. And I think it's the same with primary education going into secondary education. The job of being educated in a secondary environment, I don't think is is too challenging for the children. However, the things that you do stress about is uh, what's going to be like? Am I going to have to get a different train? Am I going to have to get a different transfer? Am I going to be able to find the building? When I find the building, is it going to be easy to get into the building? Is there weird security to get into the building? Um, I'm not going to know anyone in this new building. Um, all of those things is what intimidate us as an adult when we go into a new workplace. It's exactly the same for for a child, I think, it's, except it's just exponentially bigger because they're younger. Um, and then, you know, you're going to be going from a typ- typical primary school maybe has you know, 200 children in it, you're going to be moving into a senior school with 800 to 1,000 children in it. The the site is so much bigger. You need to travel between lessons. You need to know where different rooms are. You didn't need to know any of that stuff when you're in primary school. You just needed to know where your room was. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think that those those are the aspects which which the children get intimidated and scared about before they go. Um, those are the aspects which can be overwhelming when they first start in year seven. And those are the aspects that is absolutely crucial that your year six classroom teachers, that your year seven tutors particularly, are acutely aware of. And any transitional processes that you put in place should really, really, really focus on that stuff. So when I watch a school have a transition day, it's great. It's great that you you take the children to a science lesson where they get to use Bunsen burners. And I get that that is a really effective way to make children excited about the prospect of learning in a secondary education environment. But if you don't have a treasure hunt where they go around the school and get comfortable in traversing such a large space in a fun environment, in a fun environment, then I think you're missing a trick. Do you know what I mean? And I've watched a lot of a, a, a lot of transition days, which don't, which almost mo- molly coddle the children and guide them around the school very carefully. And uh, your, their first day in year seven, they are not going to get guided around. And even if they are going to get guided around, they're going to spend the whole summer worried that they're not going to get guided around. So in that transitional day, get them with their friends who they're comfortable with and maybe some other children so that they can get comfortable with them and and get them running around, get them lost in the school. Because once they get lost in the school, they realise that getting lost in the school isn't that big of a deal, isn't that scary. And there's always going to be a grown up around that can tell them where to go. But until they experience that, it can be quite a quite a daunting and intimidating prospect. So I think that that, you know, the physical size of the school is 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 a huge a huge part as trivial as that as that might seem you know no i think it's it's massive it's one of the reasons why i love interviewing you you've covered sort of my next three questions in terms of <laughs> what we should be doing and i think that's something that particularly when staff you're working with older students it's sometimes very difficult to put ourselves in that mindset of the younger ones and thinking what is the most important things which is why your your insights are so valuable um the other thing that i'm sure a lot of people would want to ask you um from all your experiences but particularly as a as a head teacher is when you're going around the school and you are 
looking at teachers what is it that you would want to see going on from a lesson and i'm not talking content wise but you know what i mean in terms of the the setup so the, the the thing that was most apparent to me when i went from secondary school to primary education is the best teacher in the world in a secondary school if the head teacher walked into the class the children would all go quiet would all mind their p's and q's and would all diligently work away but in a primary which is which is great but it just shows a complete disconnect with the work and a complete lack of passion and excitement for the work you know what I mean? To be that conscious and that aware of this important person coming into the classroom. And the, the the thing that I noticed when I went into primary education is I knew it was a good lesson. I knew it was a good class. I knew it was a good teacher. If when I walked into the room, the first thing that they wanted to do was, Mr. Dennis, Mr. Dennis, let me show you this. Let me show you this. And like you get kids in key stage one and down in EYFS that would literally run up to you and like hug your leg and grab your trouser leg and like pull you to their to their table so that they could show you what they were doing. Um, I could walk out of the lesson five seconds after that, after that, because at that stage, I know that the children are engaged in the content. And if the content is unsuitable in any way, they won't be engaged with it. So if it's too easy, they won't be engaged in it. If it's too hard, they won't be engaged in it. If it's not fun and exciting, they won't be engaged in it. If they are engaged in it, it's ticking all the boxes as far as as far as I'm concerned. Because nobody, nobody likes if you're into video games, nobody likes playing a video game that's too easy. Nobody likes playing a video game that's too hard. Everyone, it's like you know, the 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 three bears and the porridge. Everyone wants the thing that's just right. You know, and and I think that if you walk into a classroom and kids are enthusiastic and you know they grab in your trouser leg and I get goosebumps just just talking about it because I care about this stuff so much, you know. But they grab your trouser leg and they pull you across the room to show you their their their, their coloring if they're in EYFS or you know their spelling if they're in Key Stage One or whatever the case may be. You know they're doing some project on. Um, the two does if they're in key stage two wh- wh- whatever the case may be that that's when you know that you got a good teacher and that's when you know that you got a, a, a good healthy classroom environment now i i was probably a week into being the head of a of a junior school and i'd have meetings with the the senior management team or the senior leadership team of the senior school and i'd literally tell them man if we could bottle their enthusiasm that would be the most valuable tool which we as as secondary school educators it just seems literally in the course i don't know what happens but in the course of six months from the start of year seven we beat all enthusiasm in education out of children (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I i don't i don't know why that is but it's just cool to learn for the most part in a primary school environment so if i'm a if if i'm a middle management or senior management in a senior school and i can walk into a classroom and at least feel an element of that enthusiasm which does happen you know i've walked into sixth form lessons where there's been a discussion going on in in 
you know in a in a humanities topic where the classroom's really passionate about it or something and you can just feel that it's that it's popping you know what i mean that it's kicking off and these kids are are into what they're talking about um that's the that's what you're looking for really i mean uh, and and then short of that just generally having an awareness of like the importance that we're not just if you're in secondary and you're teaching your subject or if you're in primary and you're teaching a range of subjects just to constantly be mindful of the fact that that you're not just teaching a subject that you are always teaching children how literally how to live you know and don't think that anything that you do in front of young impressionable minds is trivial because I have shook my head in dismay at members of staff that have cut the line in a dining hall or have, you know, not been mindful of the fact that they should hold the door open for a, another member of staff or a child or, you know, pick up a piece of litter that's on the floor and put it in the bin or, um, you know, have a conversation with a groundskeeper uh, because they're busy because they've got a marker book, because they've got a prep alert. Trust me, an extra five minutes preparing your lesson is not as important to the development of young minds as them watching you have a conversation with the groundskeeper, pick up a piece of rubbish and put it in the and put it in the rubbish, queue up behind the children and wait to be served your lunch. Those things, all those if all those things take up ten minutes of your day, I guarantee that that will affect the opinions of more children and will affect the outcomes within education of more children than ten minutes extra on your lesson plan. It's something that I really feel strongly about, and I'm quite confident now after listening to you say that, that you're going to agree with me. Um, and being a secondary school teacher myself, I'm obviously always sort of talking about how, what harder it is in secondary school than primary. Um, although lots of admiration for what primary school teachers do in terms of keeping them entertained and keeping that much attention in such large numbers. But when we come to the engagement factor, which about as you say, we seem to it is more difficult to maintain in secondary school and everything you say for me my theory is always that when kids are younger they engage with you because you're the teacher and it doesn't matter who you are they they will sort of respect you and as kids get older as you say they become more worldly wise they notice other things beyond just what you do and I've had lots of teachers come to me who have been great practitioners they know their stuff and they can even plan really good lessons but if the students don't engage with them as a person as well, they're never going to get that message across. And I think it's something that that personally I see missing out too much in teacher training is that you can do all the great stuff from the lessons. You can know everything. You can plan something that's really engaging to a specialist. But if a young person can't engage with you as a person, they're not going to want to sort of learn from you in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I used to partially through laziness and again it's that 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 dichotomy of what is uh what is um work ethic but i i kind of gave up because i was a mathematics teacher i kind of gave up on the principle of spending my life trying to plan lessons which were quote unquote engaging and instead just said well i'm going to be engaging 
as the person delivering the content, I am going to be engaging. And then by de facto, the content itself will be engaging. And you think about you think about when you listen to podcasts, right? There are people who auditory are interesting to listen to. And it doesn't really matter what they're talking about. They deliver it with passion. They deliver it with uh, a genuine love for it. And that engages you and that sucks you in and that draws you in. And it's literally only auditory. There's no PowerPoint presentation. There's no, you know, there's no bells and whistles. It's, it's just someone talking and you're engaged and and you're gripped by it. So that was always my mindset was I'm going to be engaging. Because if I can be engaging, then the content can be as dry as you want, and the children will still will still um, enjoy it. And it also just makes you, if, if you focus on trying to be engaging in and of yourself, then it's transferable, isn't it? It becomes transferable across all different age groups. It tra- becomes transferable across all different subjects. It, it becomes transferable when you're working, you know, if we're talking about if we're talking about a young teacher who has career aspirations, hey, guess what? If you want to be uh, engaging to the, if you can, if you can be engaging to the children, you can be engaging to the members of staff too. You know what I mean? You can stand in front of the staff in a in a staff meeting and you can engage them, or you can engage a group of parents at a presentation. You know, so these skills become transferable. If you only know how to make the content that you deliver engaging because you add so many bells and whistles to it that you kind of cheat engagement out of it or you you know cheat the enthusiasm out of it then that's never going to be as effective to me as someone who just is genuinely um genuinely an engaging person to to, to listen to so that was always my my mindset it worked it definitely worked to my favor because that was playing to my wheelhouse. That was playing to my strengths. I was I was better flying by the seat of my pants, you know, than than I was going in with like a minute by minute plan. I was much better just to to go in there, not off the cuff, obviously having an idea of what I was going to deliver and maybe having some resources at hand, but being ready to move in a completely different direction if that's the way the the the, the conversation within the classroom was taking it. Definitely. And I think one of your things, and it'd be interesting again if you, you agree with me, is the fact that someone like you has such a, at the, I don't want to call it a, a hobby, but but wrestling, something that you were doing away from teaching at the time. Actually, I always find staff that are willing to give a bit of themselves to the students. And I would say that one of the best things for you was when the students found out that you were a pro wrestler, because it wasn't a secret as such, but it wasn't something that you told people when you first met them. Um, A lot of staff didn't know about it for a while. And I can't remember the actual ins and outs of when students did find out, but very quickly you owned that. And then actually ended up you putting on a, a wrestling show in front of the school, which was hugely sort of popular and made a lot of money for charity. But having something that you did that was a bit quirky, a bit different, actually, I think found added to your persona. And already as a popular member of staff, it was just something else that then students saw you more as a person than just a teacher. Yeah, and I think that people can, I mean, it's a bit of an extreme example when you're a professional wrestler on the weekends, but it, it doesn't mean that that's not transferable into into other things because I think that if teachers do try and just come across as this 
uh, professional robot that you know delivers their content and then goes home and that's all they are as a teacher, then children are going to find it hard to to engage them. Are going to find it hard to relate to them. Um, as you, you've pointed out, really by mentioning the, the the pro wrestling, like let's be honest, pro wrestling is a, is a, is a fringe thing. This is going to be what five ten percent of the student populace have any interest in professional wrestling. You know, over half of them are probably apathetic about it, and then probably thirty or forty percent of them actively dislike it and think it's silly. Do you know what I mean? So it's probably it's not it's not the ideal one to to become um, for children to to relate to you. It's not it's not it's not very relatable, but it just it just adds a, a layer to you as a person. And as I say, owning it instead of hiding behind it, I just think that that make it humanizes you. Um, for the children who are interested in it, then that it makes you absolutely fascinating. Um, and for the students that aren't, it just yeah, it, it makes you a human um, and realizes that there's more to you than mathematics, or more to you than psychology, or more to you than English, or more to you than whatever it is the role that you do within the school and and as i say i didn't i didn't tell anyone because ultimately i didn't think i wasn't ashamed of it i've never been ashamed of my hobby and now my profession but i didn't think it would help children learn mathematics and for that reason i wasn't really interested in sharing it um i just thought that it would be a needless distraction and i was wrong like like you pointed out because ultimately if they can know you're a professional wrestler like that's the most ridiculous thing that, that children can know right that you wear spandex go out in front of people and put on choreographed fights in front of a baying audience of people who scream expletives at you and throw beer at you in the ring like that is that is right up there with the most ridiculous things that you that your teacher can do um however once they get past that and and as i say i made it easier for them to get past it by putting a show on in the school because it couldn't have been less of a dirty little secret because there's posters up in the school of me as a professional wrestler so you know it is what it is um then you once once you take ownership of it that as long as you present yourself in an appropriate manner every time they see you you're in a suit teaching mathematics so they still see you as a classroom teacher they don't see you as a professional wrestler who teaches they see you as a classroom teacher and it was the same thing in the primary school the primary school kids knew that i was a wrestler and and i was more concerned with them in some ways because they see it a bit more as like larger than life superhero kind of thing and i did a show in the primary school as well we did that um two years later for sport relief we did the second one um and I was worried that because we did it on a midweek that time, and I was kind of worried that, say we did it on the Wednesday, that I'd come into school on the Thursday, and that it would be like the chatter amongst the parents in the in the car park, and it would be the chatter amongst the kids, and it just wasn't. They had a really good time, and they really enjoyed it, and they really respected me for doing it because it raised a bunch of money for charity, and you know it showed that I was proud of who I was, and and all the rest of it, but it didn't it didn't affect because i'm still presenting myself like a head teacher i'm still walking up to their cars and opening their doors and welcoming them into my school i've still got a suit on and 
I'm still presenting myself in a professional manner. So they they don't all of a sudden think that I'm this wild professional wrestler shouting and screaming and body slamming them. And they understand that that's just one one aspect of me as a person and where you can give the students and the staff different aspects of you as a as a person i think you're going to yield um yield results from that as a member of staff who we both know who um is a, a memory champion and i mean that's that is the polar opposite of being a professional wrestler really but it's similar in a sense of it's not very cool. So I don't think professional wrestling being a professional wrestler is particularly cool. I don't think being a memory champion is particularly cool either, but they're just like opposite ends of the spectrum. One's extremely physical and not very cool. The other one's like the antithesis of physicality um, and not very cool either. Uh, but it, it, it's the same kind of thing. It just humanizes you to the children. It makes you interesting past your subject. Um, and, and I think that that particular member of staff massively benefited from the kids knowing about it because it just makes you an interesting, an interesting personality, doesn't it? I couldn't agree more. Uh, Ed, I just want to thank you so much for your time today, taking time out of your train to share. There's so much that's got me thinking about the qualities needed to be a successful teacher. Fascinating reliving sort of the journey with you. Um, and the final thing for me, and it's a bit of a, a, a bittersweet question and sort of looking back because I've always really enjoyed discussing teaching with you. And on the one hand, it was a real shame when you decided to leave the profession. The flip side is that on a, a Friday night, I get to sort of turn BT Sport on now and see you wrestling for sort of wwe nxt uk which is absolutely phenomenal um, a lot of my students will recognize you because when you first sort of quit teaching to wrestle full-time you made a, a video on youtube that was very popular talking about sort of following your dreams um and you for me whether you are a new teacher not going into the world of education whatever sort of stage you are whoever you are listening to this podcast for me i think the biggest thing anyone can take from you ed is you are sort of a living example of someone taking a risk gambling on themselves and following their dreams um and just really just sort of your final thoughts your advice to anyone who is who has got that dream that they're not quite sure whether to follow what would you say to them uh yeah take take calculated risks i suppose like choose the path less traveled and prioritize being happy over everything else i think that that's the one thing that I tried to stress, I did a, a lecture for some sixth formers after I'd finished um, education and moved into professional wrestling. Um, and so many adults spend their lives searching for contentment or fulfillment or success. Um, you know, they try and start a family because they're supposed to start a family. They try and get married because they're supposed to get married. They try and get a promotion because they're supposed to get a promotion. Try and get a bigger house because they're supposed to get a bigger house. Um, all of those things are awesome. You know what I mean? I, I want to live in a nice house. I want to have a big family. I want to succeed in my profession. But all that really matters is that I'm happy. And I think if more people just took us when they when they're wondering about what decision to make i want to chase this dream but this is the safe route or i want to do this but i'm concerned about what it might mean for that 
is just take a step back and and just ask yourself which decision long term not short term i think that's an important differential to make but which decision is most likely to lead to yield long-term happiness and i think that if you spend most of your life trying to make the decisions that will yield long-term happiness i think you won't go far wrong because for too long for half my life i think i normalized that getting up on a monday morning and having that quote-unquote monday morning feeling was just normal everyone experiences that you're an adult working in western society that just is what that's not true that is not true there are hundreds of thousands of people that don't experience that monday morning feeling so if you experience that monday morning feeling something has gone wrong in your journey through life and you need to reassess that and try and search for happiness because you shouldn't i never feel that monday morning feeling anymore you know what i mean i feel happy and i feel sad depending on situations of course but i don't have that like pit of my stomach when i wake up ever anymore um and i think that yeah if people just spend a bit more time searching for happiness because ultimately that's the only thing that, ha- that 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 matters right whether you've got a 32 inch tv or a 65 inch tv whether you've got 60,000 pound a year coming into the bank or 20,000 pound a year coming into the bank whether you've got no children or 10 children all that really matters is that you're happy and if if you've managed to accomplish that then you're a, a wealthier person than most because i think most people at some point along the way get caught up in monetary possessions and forget that the whole reason that we were searching for these things was to try and be happier. If they didn't make us happier, we shouldn't be searching for them. Very wise words there, Ed. Uh, I don't think I've got anything to add. I don't think I can beat that as a conclusion. So uh, thank you once more for, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ben. That was Ed Dennis, head teacher turned professional wrestler. As I said at the start, very difficult to pigeonhole all of Ed's thoughts into just one idea. But for me, Ed is one of the most authentic people that you can meet. And I think that contributes a lot to the success that he's had in his different avenues that he's gone down throughout his life. I also really like that question he poses about people getting to think, what is going to make me happy in the long term? Not getting bogged down into the day-to-day humdrum that he talks about and really focusing on what gets you excited, and if you can get excited about things, it's going to lead to your success. That's everything for the extended edition today of the Brain Can Do podcast. Please remember, you can find this Brain Can Do network on Facebook. Thank you for joining us. I've been Ben Stevenson. Hope you all have a wonderful day.